Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I am Faiza Zakaria at Nanyang Technological University. And today I welcome Timothy Barnett, Associate Professor of History at the National University of Singapore, to discuss his fascinating new book, Imperial Creatures, Human and Other Animals in Colonial Singapore, 1819 to 1942, published by the National University of Singapore Press in 2019. The book analyzes how imperialism subjugates not just humans, but also animals, and unpacks how there are two expressions of power that can intertwine in surprising ways. Imperial Creatures calls on us to recognize that a city is more than human, and in line with reason animal turned in environmental history more broadly, it discusses the agency of animals as well. Welcome to the new books on environmental history, um, studies podcasting. Well, thank you, Faiza. How are you today? I'm great. I'm great. Good. Okay. Thank you so much for making the time for us. And maybe let's start with not uh, the content of the book itself, mm-hmm. but a little about yourself. Can you tell us a bit about how you came to write this book and your intellectual journey towards it? Well, I have lived in Singapore now for over 20 years. Uh, I have uh, my training and background uh, for essentially my adult life has been in Southeast Asia. Uh, about 35 years ago, I initially, uh, my, the first job I had after graduating with my undergraduate degree was uh, in Indonesia. And I lived in uh, Sumatra in the mid-1980s and became fascinated with not only Indonesia and Sumatra, but the entire Malacca Straits area. <laughs> And so from that point onward, I uh, went on and studied for master's degrees and a PhD. And those were the only periods when I was in the United States. Mm -hmm. The rest of my time, I lived in Southeast Asia. So I have basically, for the last 35 years, lived either in Singapore or Mm -hmm. Indonesia. Now, that familiarity with the region and the place, if you will, has uh, led me to research and write about things that I I don't think I would have done if I had remained in the United States uh, where I grew up. And just being in Singapore and having the normal uh, requirements for uh, teaching and research and things at a university, I I taught classes in, for example, environmental history Mm -hmm. or Singaporean history. And in each instance, when I began teaching these classes, I often found it uh, difficult to to, uh, assign materials that students could read Mm -hmm. that went over trends or uh, gave them uh, understanding about Singaporean society, about environmental history that they could relate to. And so some of my research, my recent research, I've also, uh, before this book, published a book on the Botanic Gardens in Singapore. Mm -hmm. It 
is related to not only the idea of getting material or developing material right. for students, but also just realizing, oh, here's an interesting story. Here is something I can uh, learn more about mm -hmm. myself that helps me better understand larger issues related to the environment, related to history, and related to Southeast Asia. Right, and I think it's so interesting that I think it started out with a, a way to relate to your students in mm -hmm. Singapore. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a lot that Singapore can um, show the world of environmental history in a way as a site of research? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, with regard to environmental history, Singapore is very interesting because of two main factors, I would say. One is since 1819, when imperialism began mm -hmm. here in Singapore, uh, there's been a continuous uh, accumulation of records, everything from uh, archival documents to newspapers to uh, you know, literature, anything imaginable you might want to use as a source. And therefore, uh, that is easily accessible, if you will, uh, compared to some other parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, secondly, being an island, Singapore is only about 30 kilometers by 20 kilometers uh, in length. It, it allows for a very distinctive set boundary that you can investigate. And um, it limits what you can do, but that also allows you, you know, focus. And so, uh, and, and because that small area, that small island was the centerpiece, if you will, of British imperial efforts in Southeast Asia, that helps uh, expose the story more. It helps uh, make it clearer when you're looking at the material. And, and so therefore, due to the uh, wealth of archival material and the limited boundaries, if you will, of an island, it allows for an examination of the impact of the modern era, if you will, mm -hmm. upon a uh, site in Southeast Asia. Right, I and mean, it's an interesting point mm -hmm. about how, in, in this case, a small size of Singapore becomes mm -hmm. uh, becomes advantageous in the study. Absolutely. And um, and I think one of the themes in which you choose as an entry point um, to this particular study about Singapore mm -hmm. is imperialism. So maybe you could tell us, just as an introduction to the mm -hmm. book, what exactly is an imperial creature? Okay, yeah, the, uh, the title of the book, Imperial Creatures, refers to uh, not that it is really for me, a study of imperialism in, in Singapore and the impact. How does imperialism overtake a geographic landscape and affect the creatures, the, literally the humans, the animals in that space? With Singaporean history, uh, traditionally, uh, a lot of the, the work in Singaporean history focuses around political and economic developments. Mm -hmm. And while much of that is, has been quite rich and interesting, it often doesn't get down into the idea of the impact of what imperialism did to the island mm -hmm. and how it was imposed and the and effects of that. Mm -hmm. And it's not only true for Singapore, but all of Southeast Asia. And so by using animals, creatures, it allows us to study imperialism through a new lens. And so 
Well, I believe the book is interesting on one level, this idea of, oh, how did animals interact with humans and how did they uh, play a role, if you will, in Singaporean history? It also allows us to ask bigger questions about uh, the role of uh, imperialism, about uh, a foreign culture or government overtaking a land and shaping it to mm -hmm. fit its needs essentially imperialism, colonialism. And it also allows us to think about the Singa you know, those of us who live in Singapore to think about the Singaporean past in a new way beyond traditional political or economic approaches. Right. And I think the continuity within colonial history and Singaporean, mm -hmm. uh, present Singaporean history is the ways in which power is structured. And that's a big, that's a big mm -hmm. theme in your mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. Does the, um, I mean, um, this is of course going to be yes, but uh, how, <laughs> how does the addition of non-humans mm -hmm. um, change the idea in which you think about power and the hierarchy of beings, mm -hmm. particularly in colonial Singapore, which is the subject of this book? Well, it, it, it allows us to look at uh, a topic and a subject that we often overlook. Mm -hmm. You know, th there are animals around us everywhere. They, you know, from dogs to insects to cats and birds and what have you. And by changing the point of view, uh, uh, not necessarily taking animal agency, but changing the perspective and considering them as a uh, topic, it, my hope is that it allows us to then better understand how imperialism was imposed, but also its effect on everything from humans to the smallest animal in that space. And so the thing is, it's it's a matter of giving it's not necessarily giving animals a due, you know, they're they're just due, but but it's a, a just having a different approach to think about larger issues. Right. And I think one of those larger issues is as you have mm -hmm. um, uh, mentioned, is animal agency, and that's a big mm -hmm. that's a big theme in environmental studies. Um mm -hmm. I think that I, I was struck in a way by how measured you were in in taking a stand on whether animals have agency or not, and perhaps you could share some of the views on this. Well, and how that is informed by yes, this. I mean, the the issue of animal agency is one of the big debate. You know, you go to any conference, and there's often a panel on animal agency uh, these days and and such. I uh, fell on the side of not providing agency to the animals for the, their, their stories are interesting. But if I'm studying imperialism and the idea of imposing uh, outside rule upon a landscape, the humans are the ones doing this. Uh, in many respects, you could say the animals were the victims, the tools, the, they were part of the process. And to, to see how they were regulated or slaughtered or pushed out or domesticated in a variety of ways uh, explains how uh, the colonial process took place, how the imperial process took place. And all of this is at the hands, if you will, or at the uh, behest of humans. Right. They're coming in to shape the space and change it. And so because of the focus of the book, Animal agency is not going to play a large role on this. Mm -hmm. um, there, there is one section in the book in which I discuss uh, a problem that Singapore had with tigers, for example, 
in the uh, mid-19th century. And a lot of that occurred. Tigers did on their own <laughs> come into Singapore. <laughs> they, they, they entered the geographic space. And much of that, however, was due to uh, deforestation that had occurred mm -hmm. uh, to create plantations on Singapore. In other words, they had disturbed the forest and created a perfect environment for tigers to come into. And so once again, humans had uh, created the problem, if you will. Right. Even, <laughs> uh, even though the tigers are the ones coming into the space, they had created the perfect environment for those tigers to thrive right. and then kill humans, <laughs> which then right. led to hunting of the tigers and such. And so at the end of the day for the book and because of the focus, I thought it was best to not deal with the issue of animal agency or give animals much agency in the book. Right. Although I, I understand people who uh, are very, uh, that, that do emphasize animal agency, but it's usually for the ends and means of what they're trying to say in their book. Right. It, not so much in this one. And I think that comes with a very deliberate focus on it shall we say, non-glamorous, non-charismatic animals. So mm -hmm. we hear a lot about dogs and horses and so on, less about tigers and elephants, true, which true. would be, in a way, defining um, emblems of Southeast mm -hmm. Asia when we talk about animals. Um, so how do you um, arrive at this choice of focus? Mm -hmm. Is there a, some kind of surprising archival find that led to this? <laughs> well, one of the, okay, in the, the work that has been done on animal studies and animal history in Southeast Asia. Traditionally, it has focused around charismatic beasts, yeah. if you will. Like you said, elephants, tigers. My, I have even written about Komodo dragons. Um, and that is usually a choice made because, uh, because they are well-known animals and just seeing one merited mention in the archives or they uh, created a uh, an atmosphere that needed rem uh, a mention uh, among observers. In my book, these animals rarely appear. There is a few pages on tigers. Occasionally, an elephant may be brought in, uh, <laughs> taken on the streets. But as you said, most of the animals in my book are dogs, horses, bullocks, uh, pigs. <laughs> Uh, things like this. Uh, I mean, uncharismatic creatures that are mainly either domesticated or uh, used for transportation, uh, even uh, slaughtered and eaten. And some of that came about because I, I thought about how is the daily interaction with animals? These charismatic animals, A, rarely existed in Singapore. Mm -hmm. And secondly, they don't really represent true uh, reflection of what the community mm. is in Singapore. You're more likely to see a dog every day or a horse pulling a cart down the street in colonial <laughs> Singapore than you were to see a tiger <laughs> or a, a, a Komodo dragon, of course, that had been brought in to be sent to a zoo or something. And so the thing is, uh, by focusing on those animals, we once again can look at more of the human-animal interaction. Mm -hmm. At an everyday level. Uh, at, at an everyday level. When I made that choice, uh, it was done with some ignorance and some <laughs> hope that when I went into the archives, I could find these non-charismatic animals. 
and I was I was lucky. You can find, uh, depending on how you uh, are looking and reading through the sources, there's a tremendous amount of information on dogs, but it often only appears when there is a explosion of violence or uh, a, a problem. For example, dogs appeared uh, a lot in the late 19th century because rabies appeared. In Singapore. Mm -hmm. So it came to the issue of how do we deal with rabies infecting our canine population? Mm -hmm. And then how they dealt with that then tells us a lot about the Imperial Society and how they impose controls mm -hmm. over that society. Uh, another example would be uh, horses and bullocks provided transportation uh, throughout the 19th century and how these animals are treated. You would read reports about how they may have been beaten or how they were uh, just mishandled. And then uh, certain societies and organizations were arranged to try to help protect these animals. Mm -hmm which was often done from a perspective or a viewpoint of British understandings of animal welfare, mm -hmm. which is another form of imposing this outside uh, uh, ideas upon the colonial society. And so while I chose non-charismatic animals, what then became of interest to me was that it often occurred due to violence, mm -hmm. if they did appear, or uh, some form of extraordinary control being imposed upon them. And that itself then exposed a lot about the imperial process. Mm -hmm. And so by choosing uh, non-charismatic animals, if you will, it helped understand uh, the focus of the book, which is how did humans and animals interact? Right. Yeah, on a daily basis. And violence is one. And, and violence is one of those, particularly within the imperial process. And I suppose that's a long answer for a <laughs> short question, but essentially. Yeah. I think it's a great way of um, framing, I think, mm -hmm. the our modern relationships with animals, which mm -hmm. very often is underpinned by violence. And yes. maybe extending that, um, not just violence, but also death, because there are a lot of data. Yes. Uh, one of the things when people read the book is the I, I've had compliments, but I also have heard, well, there's a lot of <laughs> death in the book. And that is because it represents the life of many of these animals, uh, oh. controlling them, shaping them, putting them into the environment. And imperialism itself was a violent process. You're imposing an outside force upon a land, economically, politically, socially. You're shaping that land, which can be deforestation but it's also choosing the animals that are in that space. And so if you're getting rid of, we'll just say, uh, native exotic wildlife through various actions, you're then bringing in other wild, uh, not wildlife, but other animals that you want in that space, which can be the horses and the bullocks that help you in the economy for transportation. You bring in pigs or cattle for food purposes or fish. In, in that same regard, you also uh, bring in, you, you have the beginnings of domestication of pets, household pets, and whether that be birds or dogs uh, or even monkeys here in Singapore, that was part of the way humans and other animals interacted. And that's part of the story. Now, to create that space, however, there's a lot of death, <laughs> you know, controlling the wild animals, shaping that space, even 
providing food in the marketplace involves slaughtering animals. And so, unfortunately, uh, I had to write about a lot of that. Um, and, and so uh, it, it, it becomes one of the markers. But then because of that, it once again helps expose how imperialism is opposed right. uh, on an island in Southeast Asia. I think, I think this just occurred to me um, through your answer, whether we should question then the distinctions between colonial and pre-colonial, because some of the processes in which um, you describe, especially mm -hmm. the use of animals for food and mm -hmm. some of the um, culling of animals for mm -hmm. um, whom, which may be dangerous to human societies as well, is a mm -hmm. uh, carries over from, I think, uh, the pre-colonial period. So in, in that sense, what do you see as a dif uh, distinction? Oh, I, I, absolutely. It, it's not to say no one ever killed an animal before 1890 <laughs> in Singapore, or that they never ate meat in uh, uh, pre-colonial Singapore. Of course they did. But it's the intensity of the process mm. and the shaping of the process. Before 1819, uh, Singapore had, you know, uh, approximately a thousand people living here and they had come in around eight uh eight no, 1780 onwards uh, to work on pepper and gambier plantations singapore did have larger populations in the past in the 14th century but it you know it, it went up and down depending on what was going on but essentially when the british arrived there were a thousand people or so on the island and the amount of change, the amount of uh, power they wielded over that environment would have been quite limited compared to what the British brought. Mm -hmm. uh, backed up by the Industrial Revolution, backed up by other ideas they were beginning to impose upon the society. Uh, it's, it's about the level of exploitation. It's about, you know, there were some scattered pepper and gambier plantations by scattered, like right next to the Singapore River <laughs> um, uh, prior to 1819. Within 50 years of colonial rule, the entire island was deforested. You know, they had essentially cut down, denuded the entire landscape within 50 years. That had an effect on the plant life, on the animal life, on the island. As they created the space they wanted to have for their own economy, for their own social purposes and uh, political purposes. Right. And there's also a flip side, I think, mm -hmm. and we might want to move on to that and thinking about how imperialism also intensifies, I think, institutionalization of um, um, ways in which we can treat animals better. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that's another well, key theme, I think, in your book. And mm -hmm. one of the most interesting thing for me, I think, in reading it was the work of the SPCA and yes. how that was historicized. Yes, which had, that yes. Was uh, um, there's an entire chapter essentially on the SPCA, the Singapore, uh, the Society for the uh, Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, at least mm -hmm. the Singapore branch of it. And what is interesting to me is that uh, when this society was set up in the 1870s, it was clearly imported from a model developed in the UK which was only about 30 or 40 years old at the time. Uh, the idea of animal welfare was a relatively new idea, even in Britain. But it was one that the British developed in uh, basically the Victorian era to represent their understanding of the place of Britain in the world. You know, a, a place in which animals are cherished. And they're not 
poorly treated. That's what other societies do. We're, we're at a different level is the way they would portray themselves. Whereas in Singapore, the same thing happened. What is also of interest to me is when the society was created, mainly by Brits who, <laughs> who had moved to Singapore, it was not directed at welfare of domestic pets and things like that, which weren't fully developed. The idea of a domestic pet wasn't fully developed at the time. Uh, it was directed toward the treatment of horses and cattle or, or bullocks. And essentially, animals needed to make the economy work. And so it was about making sure that the, the horses that pulled the uh, carriages that acted as taxi cabs or the bullet carts that carried goods to, throughout the town, that the animals that did that were well treated so they could remain productive. Um, at the same time, the SPCA directed very little attention whatsoever toward the treatment of a cat or a dog. They, they frankly just didn't care. <laughs> And uh, this only slowly shifted or changed in the early 20th century with a, a mechanization of transport. When horses and cattle were no longer important to Singaporean society, the SPCA shifted their attention to the treatment of domestic animals. And so it, it's shown as uh, part and parcel, as an integral part of the colonial or imperial uh, socialization system of the political system because it worked very closely with the government, the SPCA. And it was part of the imposition, if you will, of British values upon the, uh, the uh, island, uh, upon the society that existed here. And it then shifted with the times as society changed itself to become the institution we know of today. When we think of the SPCA today, it's about, you know, let's be honest, mainly cats and dogs or, or animals that people keep in their house. Now, I know they do other work, but that's what we think of them mainly for these days. And that's how they uh, are treated and the role they play in society today. And But this has a history. And what's interesting to me is that shifts and changes and reflects these imperial attitudes. And how much of this is a British Empire story, and or hmm. or is is there a, a sort of um, is it a broader European hmm. imperialism mm -hmm. issue? Well, I would say on different levels, it, it's relevant uh, depending okay. on how you want to look at it. It absolutely has uh, important connections to British imperial history because uh, what the book does and what this story does is it provides an example of how imperialism was imposed upon all creatures on or in a very important node or within the imperial network of Britain in the 19th and early 20th century and how that took place uh, in a variety of areas. Uh, and so, I, I, to be honest, I think it would be more interesting <laughs> to someone uh, who, who studies the uh, beyond Singapore and Southeast Asia, it would be interesting to people who study the British Empire. But it also has larger implications for imperial studies itself. The inclusion of animals and how that can be interpreted within this is a story that I'm sure 
You could find in uh, Batavia or Jakarta, you could find Bangkok, Hanoi, but also going into India or Africa or South America. How were animals treated in those societies and how did that reflect larger social, uh, economic and political forces that were being uh, developed at the time? Right. And I think some of this, in a way, is in a way gestured visually through your use of images. I mean, mm -hmm. this intersection between race, animalism, and the um, the, uh, the the connections. I think mm -hmm. between the two. And what I particularly love was the appropriateness, in a way, of the cover of the book, which mm -hmm. has a, a centralizes, I think, the image of a man, a white man, actually looking up to a chain monkey that he's holding, um, and looking at the monkey. Almost adoringly, I think. So, why, why do you pick this as a cover? What do you well, think? Uh, to be honest, I didn't pick that cover. <laughs> the people at the press picked that cover. I had a different image for the cover, but uh, it's in the book. But, uh, uh, and it's one you we have discussed outside this podcast before. And, but the, the image on the cover is of an Australian soldier looking at a monkey in, in, in Singapore in 1941, I believe. Uh, and what this represents to me, uh, you know, dangling from the monkey's neck is also a chain. And so you have this certain, the, the, the two creatures, if you will, the human and the monkey are staring into each other's eyes. And they seem to be examining each other uh, with no hostility, of course, uh, almost adoration. And I, I thought it was a nice image to show uh, that it is about the interaction of humans and animals in Singapore. And a lot of this, because of the archival records and what we have, is also, you know, from a European or a Western perspective. And, and so the cover does what a cover should do, which is capture a lot of the essence of what you'll find in the book right. in an interesting image, which is good. My, uh, an alternative image I wanted for the cover is a picture, or it's actually an etching or an illustration of, a, of what is called a menagerie race. Uh, a menagerie race was a 19th century pastime in which uh, Europeans and uh, throughout the empire, but uh, in Singapore, would take different animals. And in this particular illustration, there is a, a duck, a pelican, a monkey, a frog, a cat, and they're all kind of leashed up. And the idea was you would get them all together in the center uh, of a field and then start, and whichever animal got to the edge of the field first won the race. And they were under the control of, you know, the, the per, uh, there was a human holding the leash. And, and usually this person was a well-regarded individual. It could have been a, 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 an army officer or your boss, things like this. And so it was very funny watching your boss trying to lead an animal that wouldn't follow instructions to the edge of a field. Um, this was a story that was originally printed in a Singaporean newspaper, and then it was picked up by a London newspaper, and then an illustrator reproduced that exact story in a, a journal known as The Graphic. And so that was the image I wanted for the cover. But because of the various lines and the way it's laid out, it would not, uh, it wouldn't look good on the cover. I think it looks good in the book. I like it. It's even an image from it is on the back page or on the back cover. Uh, and it works well in that regard. It just, it just 
the image on the cover is pretty good, so I'm not going to complain. <laughs> it worked out well. And I think the, the image that you mentioned about the menagerie is mm-hmm. my favorite. Oh, oh, okay. oh, the, the, the image is sort of printed in my mind when I read the book as mm-hmm. well. And it's interesting that it's also linked to the story of how uh, practices, I think, uh, of uh, interactions between, or novel interactions between animals in, uh, and humans in Singapore kind of filter back to to the metropole. Mm-hmm. And I, does that speak to, I think, broader pertinent global lessons that we can learn um, about um, animal history um, from Singapore itself? Well, from Sing- Singapore is interesting, as I mentioned earlier, it's interesting within global studies of a range of issues such as imperialism, because it was such an important node in the British imperial network. I mean, all steamships, all communication between uh, Britain and East Asia or Southeast Asia had to come through Singapore. Singapore was essentially the British capital of imperial Southeast Asia. And so because of that, Singapore was not only a place where uh, colonial rule was imposed upon an island, it also reflected or became a gathering place for creatures. So it was a place in which, for example, trade took place, you know, a very important trade port. It continues to be so today. And during the colonial era, it was a place in which animals were gathered at the port, if you will, exotic, you know, orangutans, birds of paradise, monkey, a, a variety of uh, animals were brought here. And then from there, they could be purchased and sent on to, for example, circuses and zoos in in Europe, in Japan, in the United States, Australia. And so it was a place where people came and collected ideas about nature in Southeast Asia and then took it onwards. Uh, Another example would be Alfred Russell Wallace, Mm. uh, the man who you could say co-developed the idea of evolutionary theory with Charles Darwin. Wallace spent some of his time here in Singapore. This is where he gathered all of his materials. Sure, he did very important work in Borneo and Eastern Indonesia, but this was kind of his base, his home base, from which he took the materials, sent them back to England, gathered his notes, and then went back to, to do his work. And so, it's all, it's part of how the the periphery, if you will, then sends material back to the metropole or back to the center, in this case, London. And this can come from collecting animal, exotic animals, which happened through what it was the Raffles Museum in Singapore or the Singapore Botanic Gardens. And then they were sent back to London which then influenced their understanding of the the rain, the biodiversity of the region, the types of animals that were in the area. And so there was a, a very close connections between Singapore and the rest of the world, scientifically, as uh, economically, trade port. And this helped shape not only the image of Singapore, but help understandings about nature and biodiversity throughout the world. Right. So, yeah, and, and once again, a long answer to a short <laughs> question. Sorry. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great answer. And it kind of brings us to um, your broader work, I think, on Singapore um, environmental history, which mm-hmm. I think uh, has been your focus for almost, I think, the last um, 10 years, 10 years or, so. or so. And with, with 
a great many publications um, coming out from that, which is amazing. And um, what is, uh, for this particular book, a find that is particularly surprising compared to, I um, mean, in the light of, I think, the previous work that you've already done in, in Singapore? Uh, what I found surprising, okay, was when uh, my the work before this was a book about the Singapore Botanic Gardens. And what I enjoyed about this book, uh, or I found very interesting compared to the previous book, was the idea of periodization, particularly within Singaporean history. In Singapore, it's very easy. We all, everything begins, if you will, <laughs> in 1819, at least British imperialism. And then you go through certain uh, periods, uh, a period of East India Company rule, period of direct rule, Japanese invasion in 1942. And when I wrote the Botanic Gardens book, it was already kind of set. You kind of knew when the Botanic Gardens was founded. There were directors of the gardens who shaped how it was understood in the society. Certain things happened. And that helped shape the chapters, uh, the periodization. With this book, Animals don't exactly follow <laughs> the periodization. So a lot of the tales or the stories and chapters, for example, are uh, rooted in the 19th century. Because this is when the a lot of the, the standards, the rules, the regulations, the boundaries were set. And then they continued on into the early 20th century. But Everything just doesn't automatically be begin, for example, in 1867 when there was direct colonial rule. So when I was gathering the materials, I noticed they don't quite fit. So when I'm telling a tale of, for example, rabies entering Singapore, that just begins in 1884. And, you know, and it's basically a story of the 1880s and 1890s. Which are, in a way, lost decades of the colonial <laughs> history of Singapore. That's right, right, which doesn't quite fit into the normal periodization. Right. And so uh, that was what I found most surprising. And then what also I found surprising was I didn't expect to find materials often. And then there would be an entire file on a topic such as rabies. Once again, you know, uh, they had to write up reports on how did this happen? What were the steps we took? And so those materials are actually quite rich. There's a tremendous amount of materials in the archives. It's just people haven't gone and looked at them. They're too busy looking at other things and other topics. So every day I was finding new stories. Yeah. But my favorite fact I discovered was in the 1930s, the three most common domestic uh, household pets in Singapore were dogs, followed by birds and monkeys. I don't know how domesticated the monkeys were, but, but uh, I, you know, cats were not even on the list. But I, I just found it interesting that in a house you have a dog, a monkey, a bird, not necessarily a fish. Or a, you know, would it be your preferred choice of pets as well? Uh, mine would have been a bird, probably a cat. I'm a cat person, <laughs> but, but it would have been either a bird or a cat. <laughs> Uh, I think we've taken up a lot of your time, and I just want to end this off with two questions that I always mm -hmm. ask um, in this interview. Is the first is uh, what do you think um, is an underread or underrated book that you would like to recommend to all listeners? Okay, I, I have two actually. One in the realm of Singaporean history mm -hmm. for those interested in Singapore, and one for those interested in animal studies or environmental history. Uh, for Singaporean history, I think one of the uh, better books that is often underread is by uh, an architecture specialist named Anoma Pires, 
and it's called Hidden Hands, Divided Landscape. And it's a history of the prison system in Singapore. And I think it's not well distributed in Singapore, and not for any nefarious means, but just it was published outside of Singapore. And so making the book known or read here uh, is a little more difficult, not, but it's an excellent study of the, the development of colonial prisons and how that shaped the society. So mm -hmm. hidden hands, divided landscapes. In the realm of animal studies or environmental history, uh, a relatively recent book called The Great Hanoi Rat Hunt, which is by Michael Vine and Liz Clark. What's interesting about it is it's not a traditional book as we think of as an academic book. It's a graphic novel, but it was published by Oxford, which must mean it's serious. I don't know, but it's a, a graphic novel which deals with uh, many of the issues I deal with in Imperial Creatures, and it's this idea of quarantines and rats and disease spread, uh, which I have a chapter on in Imperial Creatures, but they deal with it in Hanoi as it was dealt with during the colonial era. And it's the way it's presented, I think, makes it more appealing and understandable. It's a fascinating story to the average reader. So please go out and find the great Hanoi rat. I think I definitely <laughs> will. This sounds like a very exciting yeah. book. And yeah. which leads me to, I think, the last question. Is it going to be a graphic novel that you're going to write next? Oh, what is your future project? I would love yeah. to do a graphic novel next if I could draw, if I could find someone to do the graphics. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that might be the problem. Right now, I'm working on a history of water, drinking water in Singapore and how the, uh, essentially, where did people get their water to drink and how did that shift over the past 200 years? And, and what did that tell us about the society? In addition, I'm working on uh, a edited volume, uh, which will be in many respects, a sequel to Imperial Creatures called Singaporean Creatures, which will take the story from 42 to the present, but others are helping me write chapters for that. And a uh, collected uh, reader on durians, uh, various writings people have had over time about durians. Physical durians, yeah. no, metaphorical. No, no, real durians, <laughs> like the fruit, the Southeast Asian fruit durians, a durian reader. Right. Yes, you will. Yeah. That sounds really exciting. And we've taken up so much of the time. Thank you so much for the great conversation, Tim. Oh, no, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was my conversation with Smith Barnett on Imperial Creatures, Humans, and Other Animals in Colonial Singapore, 1819-1942, published by NUS Press in 2019. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Environmental Studies. Hope you enjoyed it, and will join us again soon.